Welcome to Comically Confused, a New 52 podcast, where we're covering the entire New 52 one book at a time. I'm your host, Grant. And I'm your host, Nate. And Nate, what book are we covering this week? We're reviewing Volume 2 of Scott Snyder's Batman run. Yeah, and tell me what you've thought about this run so far, Nate. Well, I feel like this is one of the, still one of the best Batman runs in recent re- recent history. It's not as, this volume in particular isn't at the same level of quality as Volume 1, but it's still an amazing Batman book. I, I definitely didn't feel as blown away on this volume as I did on the first. It's still a very serviceable Batman story with some very good moments, uh, both in the main ongoing story as well as some of the side stories they tell in this volume. Uh, but it's certainly not the book that I'd be pushing into the hands of all new and existing readers like the first one was. It, it really works off the backbone of the last volume, because if you haven't read that or haven't read volume number one, you're not really going to get this volume. So it's not a good starting on point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Do not skip the first volume. This isn't like action comics where you're actually better served that way. You'll you'll be lost and you probably won't get a whole lot of enjoyment out of this if you don't know the opening. So one of the big changes here uh, with this volume is we start to see the introduction of a few new artists to the book. Uh, So issues 8 through 12, or sorry, 8 through 11 with the main story. Uh, We stick with Greg Capullo, who did the first seven issues of the book. Uh, the annual had Jason Fabuk, if I'm saying his name per- correctly, uh, come in to fill in for that annual. The backup stories are done by Raphael Albuquerque, and issue 12 had guest artists Becky Cloonan and Andy Clark. So overall, how did you feel about the shift in artwork here, Nate? I really like the art in number 11, I believe. Is that the issue with the backup of uh, Alfred? Uh, let's see the, let's see. Most of the issues in this book had the backups following Jarvis and Alfred Pennyworth. Uh, but I think that's the one you're referring to in issue 11 that shows him as well. Yes. That's that his art was really good for that type of book. It was a more hard tone and it fits. Cause it's not those backups were not the standard superhero story. So it was more horror based with the court of owls. So the art style really, really improved that type of way of depicting that. Yeah, I really liked his art in the backup stories we'll cover later following Jarvis, Pennyworth, uh, and the uh, crimes involving Bruce Wayne's parents and everything that happened in the past. Uh, I thought it worked very well there, which was... Uh, kind of a relief getting to those backup stories because his introduction on this arc actually is a small story called The Call, I believe, that picks up literally seconds after the artwork that Greg Capullo did in issue number eight, I believe. And so we see one page is Greg Capullo's artwork with a very distinct and kind of cartoony style. And then the next switches over to Raphael's depicting the same exact characters, the same basic events, only now it's in this much more gothic and gritty style. The designs of the characters are different. So in a context like that, it's like watching your favorite show and then you come back from commercial break and all of a sudden all of the actors are different and the show is shot in a different style. It looks more like a soap opera than the standard TV show. So very weird and off-putting there. But once they gave him his own story and didn't expect him to fill in for a good eight to 10 pages on Greg's behalf, his art really got time to flourish and work for itself. Yeah, I agree 100%. It's really nice. It feels really intentional, not just that Greg was having to fill in for Greg. 
Yeah, and while I don't have a ton of thoughts regarding the other artwork, uh, Jason Fabook's artwork in the annual, I really enjoyed just uh, seeing shift to a little bit more realism than what we had seen in the book before, uh, especially given that that book also has a darker tone and more horror elements to it as well. Uh, so I thought it was a really great choice to pick him for this particular annual. I agree. It's felt really suited the storyline, and that's the the most that you want from a, a fill-in artist. Yeah, and tying it off, uh, the last issue of the arc, uh, issue 12, uh, artists that I'm not terribly familiar with, uh, Becky Cloonan and Andy Clark came in to draw that issue, and I really liked what they did there. It's a very large departure from what we'd seen in the book before, but because the book is following a different character and has some LGBT representation, uh, I really liked that it had more of an indie comic style. It's very reminiscent of what you would see in like uh, Safe Sex or Bitch Planet uh, or any number of image comics relating to LGBT characters and issues. I agree. It's a really nice art style. It's especially because it's from a different point of view than a superhero or Batman or anyone in the bat family it's nice to have a different art style that suits this different type of point of view yeah if anything it's closer to like archie than it is the previous issue of batman but shifting away from the artists and focusing more on the story here let me just give you a quick rundown of issues 8 through 11 the main story of this volume uh, we see the Court of Owls has unleashed their army of talent assassins on Gotham, targeting 40 of the city's most important civil leaders and public figures, including Bruce Wayne. Before they realize what's happened, Bruce and Alfred are attacked by dozens of talons in Wayne Manor. Alfred puts out a call to all the allies of Batman and Gotham to protect the civil leaders, while Bruce relies on every trick in the Batcave to hold off the talons long enough to drop the cave's temperature and exploit the assassin's weakness to cold. With the help of a large mech suit, a mechanical T-Rex, I'm sorry, let me do that one again. With the help of a large mech suit, a mechanical T-Rex, and the cave bats themselves, Batman is able to defeat the Talons attacking his home and then immediately rushes into Gotham City to help with the other attacks. While the Bat family has accounted for most of the names on the Talons hit list, one of the names unaccounted for is mayoral candidate Lincoln March. Batman arrives too late, and Lincoln is killed by one of the Talons, but with his dying breath, he gives Batman a list of people he believes to be members of the Court of Owls. Bruce proceeds to track down these members of the Court, and even finds where the rest of the members are meeting, but when he arrives at their secret meeting room, he finds they've already killed themselves via poisoned wine. Days later, we see that the events of the Night of the Owls don't quite add up for Bruce, and he comes to the realization that Lincoln March was behind their actions. Bruce finds that Lincoln's body is missing from the morgue and tracks him down to the Willowwood Home for Children, the orphanage that raised March. March reveals that Batman... Sorry, one more time. March reveals to Batman that he was one to... One more time, sorry. March reveals to Batman that he was the one to poison the Court of Owls and that he didn't fake his own death, but instead used the formula created for the Talons to resurrect himself. He also reveals that he's Bruce's younger brother, he claims that he was very sick when he was born and taken to Willowwood back when it was a well-funded and respected children's hospital, but was forgotten when the Waynes were murdered, and he was instead raised in the abusive hellhole that the Willowwood later became without their funding, and he was then taken in and trained by the Court of Owls. March puts on an advanced set of talon armor designed to rival Batman's, and the two proceed to fight in a battle across the city. The fight ends in an unfinished skyscraper that March blows up in an attempt to kill them both. 
Batman survives, but he is not able to find the remains of Lincoln March. The story ends with a conversation between Dick. Sorry, one more. The story ends with a conversation between Bruce and Dick Grayson, aka Nightwing. Bruce explains that he did have a younger brother that was born prematurely due to a car accident who died shortly after birth. All records of this seem legitimate, and Bruce believes the court convinced an unrelated orphan to believe he was a lost son of the Waynes. Bruce knows members of the court are still out there, and when they return, he'll be ready for them. All right, let's talk about our first major key point in this. The One of the key action scenes in this, the attack on Wayne Manor. How do you feel about that, Grant? This is something that I feel a little strangely about because I think the attack is done very well. It's a cool action scene that uses a lot of the set pieces that we've seen with Batman since the animated series in the 90s. The problem with it is, though, that this action scene is so strong and they really take their time doing cool stuff with it that the rest of the arc the action just kind of falls short in comparison to it. So it just kind of seems like they started with a climax this volume and then the rest is just kind of resolving other plot threads and trying to stay exciting, but not matching that same level of intensity we get in these first two issues. So you're saying it peaked too high at the beginning, especially because this happened like start of issue eight and it's just everything's after that just felt a little flat to you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's an awesome premise to just see Bruce Wayne defending himself in Wayne Manor and then the fight leading to the Batcave where like where first they have him almost naked fighting in just a robe and relying on all the tricks of Wayne Manor and secret passages and just using the scaffolding and parts of the house themselves to give himself a bit of an advantage over higher numbers and better equipped enemies. Uh, and then to get him... Then to see him get into the Batcave and use literally every trick at his disposal to fight for 40 people or more that are more powerful than he is and uh, more well-equipped. So I just think that's such an awesome sequence, and I'd really love to see something like this happen in the Batcave in a live-action movie. I can agree with you. At Phil's, this fight scene was one of the best in the book and is the best in the book, to my opinion. And I really like the desperation. You can see even on Batman's face, and you have him and Alfred just running around the manor after you use any advantage they have because they're so severely outnumbered. And we even see him hop in the suit that I call like the Bat Buster that's only meant for uh, alien invasions or attacks against metahumans. But you just see him get that desperate that he has to pull it out just against the Talon assassins. And even did a cool trick saying that the you like the body temperature of the talons. They actually decrease the temperature in the cave, making sub-zero, so make them freeze. It, it felt like Batman had to use his brains other than what you see in most superhero actions when it's just a brute force fight. Yeah, and they just have so many moving parts to this fight that really make it more interesting. Like, it's not just Bruce needing a mech suit to beat up everybody in the room. It's a matter of survival. Like, they just need to stay alive for, like, five to ten minutes while the temperature drops low enough that the owls won't be able to keep moving. Um, I will say I'm a little surprised. Like, I don't think they established quite how strong the Talons were at this point. Uh, it's not a huge flaw of this action scene, but like we're told that they can bust through a vault door. We see them handling this giant mech suit, presumably designed to fight metahumans without too much trouble. So 
I, I wish we could have seen a little bit more in the previous volume or earlier this volume, just how formidable the Talons are. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, this is almost a perfect action sequence. I, I do agree on that plan. It's not a ha- really think on that because if you remember from volume number one, we see the Talons are just really highly trained assassins. And in this, in that issue, they started to feel more like metahumans with superpowers than just average assassins. Yeah, and that kind of leads into the attacks on Gotham. Like, previously we have seen one Talon being a fair fight for Batman in some extents. I mean, at least the first Talon we see him fight in the last volume uh, uses a lot of similar tactics to Batman and even manages to defeat him on a couple occasions. So seeing that there's an army of these things attacking Gotham and the only people responding are like Nightwing and the Robins and the Birds of Prey and Batgirl, like you're dispatching eight normal people against an army of assassins. And like that, that just doesn't quite add up to me. I feel like if one of these guys was something of a match for Batman, what's little 12 year old Robin going to do? Or what's Batgirl going to do if like they've built up that Batman is easily the best of them. And I don't think that's a controversial statement to put that out there. Yeah. I feel like it's what we see in a lot of, especially in Kung Fu movies where, and especially if you've seen like Daredevil TV show, that's like a perfect example of this, when it was a fight scene, it was just Daredevil versus one ninja, right? So and that ninja whooped his ass. But when we have a fight scene with a dozen ninjas, he can have a fair match. It's like a lot. I feel like this happens a lot when you just have one opponent and that'd be a major challenge, but they use the same foe later and just build the numbers and it's still a fair fight somehow. And there is a bit of an explanation to kind of solve this gripe, but I guess I feel like 40 assassins being launched to the city that has like eight human superheroes to deal with this this feels like a time to call in the Justice League. Like, there's three or four of those guys that can be there about in the speed of light. Like, you can get Superman, the Flash, Green Lantern, maybe even Wonder Woman there in no time. So, like, this kind of seems like something that you need a little bit more backup with. Now, I would... Go ahead. That's actually funny that you mentioned that, because the Justice League, if you remember in Volume 2 of Justice League, that the Talons actually attack a plane full of playing full of Gotham citizens and you actually see the Justice League in that, but you don't get to actually, they don't actually reference that in this volume of Batman. It was the scene with, with Green Arrow with that little I, gag. I do recall that. And I'm wondering how well coordinated that was between Scott Snyder and Jeff Johns to kind of orchestrate that. So at least I know from reading Justice League that there's a bit of an answer as to why they weren't called for this, but might've been worth at least mentioning and passing. If not, in the heat of the moment, at least in one of the little epilogue scenes between Bruce and Dick or between two other characters. I do feel like for this being an event comic and having like multiple tie-ins, I feel like this is a nice setup that would have like the Court of Owls attacking Gotham is a nice setup for future tie-ins with the rest of the Bat family books. So I am looking forward to that, see how they handle it. Because this is a Scott Snyder left a really good uh groundwork to work work on in that tie-in. Other than like most comics that have to find wiggle room to fit their character into an event. Now, as a counter argument to that, I actually feel a little bit gypped by the presence of tie-ins with this event, just because I feel like it really hurts this story and posterity in that, say you're like me or you, and you just buy 
Batman Volume 2. And you get reference that this major fight, this major event of this story of the Talons attacking all these important people of Gotham, that's all taking place in books outside of this one where it's still a major story point. So if if I only own Batman Volume 1 and 2 and I'm reading this, I don't really have that many means to go. I'm like, okay, now I need to buy some Nightwing to find out what happened with him here or Batgirl or the Birds of Prey. I'm not sure who all had tie-ins with this, but it just feels like it removes a major chunk of the story just for the sake of selling more books. And I'm not opposed to introducing those characters and having them have some tie-ins, but the fight between the Bat family and the Talons is almost completely off panel. So I don't think we're even really given enough to satisfy the main reader uh, where I'd love to at least see enough to know like how well they did or how they were a match for these guys. And if I want to see how these fights happened or get more details there, then I'll buy the tie-ins. I I can get what you're saying in this. I do feel like it would be a pacing issue a little bit if we actually saw some of the, maybe if we just saw a couple panels of them fighting, but I feel like it'd be a, kind of a pace in this year if we put too much focus on that, especially the story is like really tied into Bruce. And in volume two, we get a small glimpse of it because the annual is in volume two and you get to see a little of a Robin and Nightwing, but that's about it. Yeah, I just wish they'd given me a little more incentive to pick up those books, especially when we see enough characters involved that like, there's no way I'm going to buy eight tie-ins and like, how do I know what's important or who does what, or how do I know that it's not just the same basic story told for eight different characters? Like I don't really need to see the same thing just with Nightwing and then with Red Hood and then with Red Robin and then with regular Robin. Like it, this isn't really selling me on these tie-ins that well, which is unfortunate given how important those events are. I do agree. The only tie-in, if I was just a monthly reader, that I would be interested in would be the Nightwing tie-in because he actually has a, a, a relation to the Court of Owls because he was supposed to be a Talon. Other than that, it's not much that I would just go out and read a, the Batgirl book or Birds of Prey just to see what happened with the Court of Owls. If I wasn't already like had that book on my monthly pull list. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big Nightwing fan already, so like that's pushing me that way up anyway but he is the only character that's given much time in this book so uh yeah i would agree with you there that nightwing would be the most enticing of the tie-ins so uh going to our next key point how do you feel about uh uh so grant how do you feel about batman low point in this you feel like it was rushed you feel like it was done right you feel like we had enough time with it how do you what's your thoughts on that topic a little bit of a break between volumes one and two i do feel like this just kind of rushed over that low point bruce was feeling both physically and emotionally like at the end of the last arc he's on bad terms with nightwing he's pushed away his friends uh, and he's seemingly physically exhausted maybe even broken in a few ways but then right away he's handling an army of talons fends them off in the bat cave and we've just never they don't take much time to show him being physically exhausted or see how his physical or mental state is affecting him while he's doing this. Cause after he handles this huge Epic fight, he just heads right out into the city and deals with a bunch of other things. Uh, And especially in the end, after he's had all these like earth shaking revelations about his family and the potential he has a long lost brother, he's just all of a sudden better. Like he kind of makes good with Dick apologizes for being such a Dick himself. 
Uh, and I just didn't see that point. Like, okay, well, when did you get better? Who who talked you through all of this? So I, I think there are certain story beats that are missing here that we needed to expand on this quote-unquote low point. I didn't really get the emotionally broken Batman that that I felt like we should have had throughout this. Because we get hints of that, that he's still off when he's fighting the Court of Owls in the manor, but he's still at the top of his game because he won and he could think of like ways to beat him. And he doesn't feel off. He doesn't feel shaken or the fear from the Court of Owls is gone. And even at the climax and, I mean, the resolution, like all we get is Batman's up a little beard and he's in a wheelchair because uh, of the explosion. But we don't really see him mostly broken, and I don't feel like him being broken is going to carry on in Volume 3. I feel like this is the end of this arc. Yeah, I, I would certainly agree with you there. I think we're on the same page with this, that just that isn't quite explored enough with him. And that ominous presence of the Court of Owls is just kind of gone by the end of this book. Uh, and that's actually a pretty big problem I have here, is that the entire court is killed off screen for the most part they do acknowledge that there are other members outside of the country but like they could have used them as a set piece for the rest of this run on batman like okay so sure batman and friends stopped the talons but nothing about the court had to happen then you could still have these people pulling the strings behind gotham that bruce doesn't even know who all is part of it that would just kind of keep adding this ominous presence throughout the book, but instead they're just unceremonious, unceremoniously killed by Lincoln March. And I feel like that was a big waste. Uh, and just everything I loved about this idea as a villains in the first volume just kind of gets squandered here. Yeah, it kind of sucks because if you look further in the future, if you know anything about the Cordellas, the Cordellas do come up uh, later on in like other books in this Batman some of the bad family books and all that, but I feel like this is where the Court Owl peaks as villains. And this is like one of the only story we actually hear with the about the Court of Owls, so it kind of sucked. And I feel like it's just, just because we lost so much of the Court of Owls just in the storyline. Like, you look at something like the League of Assassins, when they appear, it's not like they kill Rachel Ghoul, Talia, and all the other officials right off the bat. Yeah, I, I think the line that's hard to balance here is like the court of owls made such a strong first impression with this book, but I think you could have done a lot more with that concept. If that had instead been something Scott Snyder built to over the course of his book. So give us 12 to 20 issues of seeing hints of the court of owls and Batman dismissing them and, you know, build them up to be the threat that they should be. And then, it'd be a little easier to stick the landing, I believe, with the whole Night of Owls event. But I don't, that's just my opinion. I'm not a writer myself, so it's hard to say. Yeah, I agree with you. I feel like Court of Owls wasn't, was made just for the storyline and not for the greater DC universe as a whole to play with. Mm. It could Because I feel like they could have been like a, like a League of Assassins just in like Gotham. But it, at the end of the part, it's like a, clear resolution to this and they can like not show up at all and not really losing much the way the book ended 
Yeah, and especially now, you could do so much with this. I mean, with uh, conspiracy theories really taking off in the last couple of years, you could really use them as some sort of like Illuminati or deep state characters. And I don't know if all the current writers are just trying to respect Scott Snyder and not play with his toys too much, especially while he's still writing Batman. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of potential with these villains that no one's tapped into in the years since. Yeah, and we're going to see what DC tried to do with the Court of Owls later on in this new 50 reading all new 52 because there is a talent book that is on our list to read so it's going to be interesting yeah i'm excited to cover that but i've heard so little about it that i'm afraid it's gonna be lackluster but i'm really hoping to be surprised with that one i didn't even know it existed before i made the reading order so it's gonna be a interesting read Uh, but so moving on to the man himself oh the big bad of this how do you feel about uh, the twist uh, of Lincoln March being Thomas Wayne Jr., uh, quote-unquote? Yeah, uh, so as far as the twist itself goes, I was not surprised at all to see that Lincoln March was the villain of the story. Uh, it was kind of the same situation with Batman Hush back in the day, like, oh, there's a mysterious new villain in Batman's life. Maybe it's also the same, like, probably also the same new character that shows up in his life as well outside of the villain costume so i wasn't shocked to see him turn out to be the bad guy in the end uh but i'm not sure how i feel on the whole thomas wayne jr thing uh, especially without being given a little more evidence to indicate that he's the actual person since i think there's just a few too many holes in his story like okay, how does nobody else know that there's a Wayne at this hospital? Or, like, I just feel like there's some big leaps in logic from the part of Lincoln. Uh, I think it does kind of help justify why Bruce is so easy to dismiss it at the end. Uh, But, like, if Lincoln is as smart and conniving as as we're shown to see he is, then I feel like he probably also would have figured out that maybe he's not Bruce Wayne's brother after all. So, I didn't get a because I read this book beforehand, so I, I knew the twist was coming. I didn't, and I'm, I tried to remember how I felt when I originally heard about the twist, and I read it the first time, and I wasn't that impressed with it. Because, like you said, it's different if we the character was introduced beforehand for the story, or if you had time to the actual twist. But it's pretty obvious that it's something he was like the big bad behind all this because he was just introduced. He was a nice character. Um, you assume he'd be a red herring, how obvious it was, but it's it's interesting. And I don't know how I feel about him. I do like the fact that it's up in the air. That it's, it, he didn't say, this is Thomas Wayne Jr. or this isn't Thomas Wayne Jr. It's up in the air. Even, the, even Bruce said itself that if I want to be sure, I need some DNA evidence. And it kind of makes sense that it's some jumping logics because the core file was manipulating him. to. Uh, they, they could be manipulating him to say he is Thomas Wayne Jr., and and we'll see later, we get a little more instances of seeing like the accent that would cause Lincoln Marsh to be like this. But let's talk about Lincoln Marsh's character. I wasn't feeling it, man. I wasn't feeling his uh monologues, his talking about his life being in the hospital. It was written well. I just didn't care for the character because it's so much at once. 
I guess I really liked the first monologue we get from Lincoln March in the last volume where he's kind of explaining his experience being an orphan and losing his parents. Like I thought that was a very touching moment and did a good job establishing some kind of connection between him and Bruce. But here, especially in the fight scene, we get just excessive monologues from Lincoln. Like the whole last fight is just him basically dragging Batman across the Gotham skyline and through the city uh, with Batman doing minimal responses while he's just covering the artwork with these massive word balloons of exposition and monologue. And uh, yeah, like the way you put it, I just wasn't feeling it. And this isn't helped by the fact that like, Lincoln doesn't feel like that much of a threat as the final fight of this. I mean, the Court of Owls and like the Army of Talons or the Labyrinth in the last volume, all things that seemed pretty rough for Batman. Like I, the odds didn't seem in his favor, but like, okay, a guy in a slightly more powerful suit than Batman, like that's the kind of thing we see him deal with all the time. And since they didn't play up his physical exhaustion and he's had days to recover at that point, like... I just, I didn't feel like he was in any danger from Lincoln, regardless of how fancy his suit was. I mean, this guy fights Superman sometimes. I don't know. It felt, it might be a weird example. It felt really like in Incredibles when uh, Cinderella was fighting Mr. Incredibles. <laughs> where it's just like Cinderella was just making these monologues and speeches about his feelings about Mr. Incredible, but all Mr. Incredible was saying these one, like one sentence responses. And that's how I felt with Bruce responding to to Lincoln March. And it's like, oh, you're just not my brother. I don't believe you and all that. Like, it wasn't even a back and forth. And it was just Lincoln just talking, Batman just saying, no, you're wrong. I don't believe you. I love that you drew the Incredibles comparison because uh, I don't know if this is just irony or planned, but a lot of this monologue even happens in a jet engine, like Batman's on the borderline of being sucked in, but he lost his cape earlier in the fight, and that's why he doesn't get sucked in, probably. Uh, so, yeah, I do wonder how much uh, Incredibles influenced that final fight. <laughs> that's a good point. I It just sucks because this is... I didn't expect the first time reading this, this is where the storyline is going. I felt like it's going to be uh, another big fight with the Bat family or, or something. Just fighting talents. I didn't expect Lincoln March to be like the big bad killing all the rest of the talents. It just doesn't feel right for him to be this, yeah. this big and powerful. And I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but there's a lot of things they could really do to build up the tension of this mystery. Like maybe in Batman's investigation of the Court of Owls, he could have come across some evidence that maybe implied that this person was related to him or he sees a boy in one of these pictures of these abused kids that looks a lot like little boy Bruce Wayne like that you could plant some evidence to make the reader come into a little more doubt but uh when I finish this book like I know there is some level of speculation available but I'm not leaving this book feeling convinced at all that Bruce Wayne has a secret brother like I'm much more on his mindset of like yeah they probably brainwashed an orphan yeah i agree and let's finish off with this arc uh how do you feel about the resolution because we wasn't the biggest fan of the climax but how do you feel like how scott snyder tied this all up uh by that are you talking about the final fight scene or more of the last few pages between last, Dick and Bruce? last few pages yeah i i like that they had a moment of him kind of coming to terms with uh, Dick and like apologizing for the way he was. And they have kind of a good heart to heart. 
Like after so much fight exposition, it's nice to see conversation exposition in comparison where it makes sense for people to be talking this much. Uh, and I also like that it's trying to sort of repair their relationship because the upcoming arc is going to deal a lot with the dynamics of the Bat family. Uh, I, I just kind of wish that Bruce was left a little more haunted by the experience. Uh, just seems like he's managed to come to terms with everything pretty well. And given the nature of this threat, I really would have liked to see him uh, a little more on edge about how little he actually knows about Gotham. I agree. It, I feel like it's it, it calls back to the beginning of the book saying, what is Gotham? And I like Batman having a realization of Batman is not Gotham. The villains is not Gotham. The Court Owl is not Gotham. All that makes what Gotham is. Gotham so like is that. all of us. Yes. And, but, and I also like that he's still determined of rebuilding uh, Gotham City. And but it's just I feel like it should be a little more strained on Bruce after having so much to deal with, especially because he doesn't feel it's not even like Bruce feels himself like this could be my brother that just died. He's saying it's like he's what almost like 90% sure he's just a crazy person. So I do like how it ended. I do like it's like a nice close big book ending, but I feel like it should be a little more uh left over to continue on with the story. Yeah, and I just had this realization talking about this, but I think the problem at the end of the day with Lincoln is that Lincoln isn't right. Like, it'd be one thing if you were kind of a Harvey Dent character that actually were who's uh, gonna turn everything around for Gotham, who's also an orphan and uh, really cares for the underclass, but at, at the end of the day, like, like it doesn't seem like he actually the right in any of his points. Whereas other villains, Batman in the past, like, yeah, two boys and Ivy, like, they're kind of in the right, and that makes them that much more comp villains, whereas this guy just became another crazy dude in a fancy suit. Yeah, it didn't feel whatever, and that was you get from a lot of Batman villains. It just felt like, this person is crazy, and has nothing right about them. And not even the good kind of crazy, like the Joker, where he's, like, like insane. He just felt like, a manipulated person as being kind of yeah. jealous of Bruce. And I mean, the groundwork is all there, not just with the mayor backstory, but like Lincoln is the one to ultimately kill the court of owls. So you could even play that up as well. Like being the character raised by these psychopathic aristocrats, like him being the one to actually end it. There's a great story there. And uh, unfortunately I think, I don't know this, could have just been pushing demand since you have to put out a story every month. But gosh, I, I know we've beat the point on its head here, but wasted potential there. Yeah. Uh, so you want to move on to our next points? Yeah. It's a, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I'd like to talk about some of the bigger highlights of the story since uh, the main plot line of this with the court of owls kind of petered out to a somewhat disappointing ending. Uh, what really makes me like this volume still, though, is everything else in the book, like the backup stories, the annual, the side story in issue 12. Uh, so, yeah, I'd really love to go over everything I loved about this book uh, outside of the main plot. All right. Uh, let's you want to talk about the annual first, because it still relates to the main plot. Yeah. So for those who didn't get a chance to read this and sorry to be late on this spoilers, 
Uh, this kind of takes place between issues or in the middle of the events of, uh, I think, issue nine. Uh, we find out that Mr. Freeze was helping the Court of Owls develop technology to help them unfreeze their talons and activate their army. And the annual acts is this awesome retelling of Mr. Freeze's origin for the new 52, uh, while also showing his own escape from Arkham and quest to regain his suit and his weapons and uh, find his wife and get her out of town before the end of the night, just to be done with Gotham and all the stuff going on with the Talons. Uh, And it slowly reveals that this version of Mr. Freeze isn't quite as tragic as the one we've seen in the past, like in the Batman animated series. Uh, instead, he's very much a psychopath. Uh, this wife of his that he's obsessed with, he never met. She was frozen in ice long before he was even born. Uh, we find out he was even kind of responsible for his mother's death. And as a kid, he liked to play with freezing animals. So, yeah, this guy's not really getting any sympathy from the reader this time around. Whereas the previous incarnation from uh, what we know from the animated series in Heart of Ice was quite possibly Batman's most tragic villain. I this this change if you didn't wasn't this change if you wasn't keeping up with New Fifty Two at the time was one of the one of the major first changes that people hated. They hated that they took away Mister Freeze was basically just a crazy person like the rest of Batman villains, and that he lost the sympathetic sympathetic and being tragic that a lot of people love about his character. And looking looking to this from a twenty twenty mindset. I really like, I wouldn't say like, but I understand the change they did with Mr. Freeze's character because it put him more in line with other Batman villains and allowed him to tell more stories with the character other than just having Heart of Ice, which is like the only story I hear about Mr. Freeze. And to clarify for those who aren't as well versed in Batman villains, uh, prior to this and still in other versions of the character, uh, Mr. Freeze's wife does come down with a terminal illness and becomes cryogenically frozen until they can find a cure. Uh, And Mr. Freeze is trying to find a way to unfreeze her now that a cure has been found. Uh, Through a tragic accident, he becomes kind of frozen himself and needs a suit to stay alive. So in the previous stories, really all the man is missing is resources and money to unfreeze his wife. And that's why he has this life of crime. Uh, and that's comparing it to this, where, yeah, he's just obsessed with this woman who was frozen ice years ago. Uh, the accident that caused his disfigurement and condition is really his own fault from lashing out in anger in the lab. Uh, so, yeah, there's not really any point here that you feel like this character was wronged by the world. Yeah, and a couple other changes they did with the storyline. In the original storyline, it was a random businessman that caused the accident with a Mr. Freeze, and this time it's actually Bruce Wayne. When Bruce Wayne came back to Gotham, he wanted to change instead of like cryo freezing bodies, he just wanted to shut down that program and like just go different avenues with freezing technology. And Mr. Freeze freaks out because he was keeping Nora, so it brings Bruce Wayne more in line. And and I really like that it really plays with obsession because like most Batman villains. They're all based on mental illness. And really, we see from the beginning that Mr. Freeze is obsessed with cold after his mother fell down uh, fell down uh, some ice <laughs> and during the winter. And it really plays... Because even Batman says himself, you don't really care for Nora if she come back to life. That's not what you like about her. 
he liked that she's frozen, she's cold. And you probably freeze her again because you see at the end of the issue that he pushes his mother down again and kills her. So it really makes makes Mr. Freeze crazy, but I feel like you can get more mileage out this character than just having the character we see in Heart of Ice is just a sand tragic villain. You don't really get that much mileage out of a character like the Choker, Riddler, or Penguin, or Bane, where their their goal is not as straightforward. Yeah, and similar to what you're saying there, like personally, I find the old version of Mr. Freeze a little more interesting, where he's just trying to do his best to save his wife and uh, doesn't really care who he hurts in the process. I feel like this version works a lot better for Batman, not only just because now he has a personal vendetta against Bruce Wayne, but in the old comics, we've even seen memes made about the fact like, oh, Mr. Freeze needs money. Well, Bruce Wayne, you have plenty of that. You can just throw that at him and solve the problem. Whereas here, like no amount of money or technology is going to solve this guy's problems. He's always going to be this messed up regardless of he cures Nora or not. So for the purpose of a Batman book, he absolutely works a lot better and you can do more with that character. And it eliminates this major character flaw with Batman, which I'm noticing a lot now in Scott Snyder's run that the little problems with Batman, he's addressing here and there to make the common arguments against him not really work for this run. And if anyone has a Mr. Freeze storyline other than Heart of Ice that they think is uh, pinnacle, what you can do with the character after the Nora plotline, please leave a comment down below. I will definitely check that out because the only ones I really know of is from the animated series and uh, episode of Bad Meow when he comes back. Other than that, I'm not, I don't have the knowledge of knowing other Mr. Free stories. Other than him just be appearing as a standard villain. And before we move on from this, one thing I really wanted to shout out is the fact that uh, the writer James Tinian IV uh, co-wrote this annual as well as the backups and issue 12 uh, for this particular volume. And I can really see his writing strengths in this annual because he has a very strong horror background outside of his work in comics. And so does Scott Snyder. But yeah, like with all the reading I'm doing for this podcast, there's a very few books that I'm managing to keep up with. But of the two that I'm willing to dedicate my time to, one is from James Tinian. It's uh, Something is Killing the Children. Awesome horror story that I very much you guys pick up in trades. Uh, I know he's doing a lot of other work with uh, his own horror magazine. He's launching Razor Blades. Uh, he's awesome as far as horror figures go. So this being October, check him out. And yeah, Scott Snyder also does a lot of horror like Witches and um, Wake and a few others. And I bring this up because this whole issue is just covered in horror themes. Like from the first panel where you see a young Victor Freeze and his mom out on the ice, like just with how ominous they've drawn that image and how slowly they're building everything up, you know something's going to go wrong right off the bat, and that tension is immediately present. Yeah, shout out to James Sinian. He's definitely check out his work. He did an excellent run, my favorite run, actually, on Detective Comics, and he's currently writing one uh, fan-favorite Batman run right now with the Joker War. So if you like Batman... Check him out, because this is where he gets his uh, beginnings, being as yeah. uh, Snyder's protege. Yeah, and he did some previous work as well with, like, Battle of the Cowl and prior to the New 52, maybe even as uh, with some art there as well. 
But regardless, he's been the unsung hero of Batman comics for quite some time. And his work, whether it's in a horror or Batman, certainly deserves more attention. I agree. Uh, let's go to our next backups. The backup. Um, let's go to our actually backup issues in this is the Charles Pennyworth, which is actually didn't know it was backups to uh, you mentioned it earlier because uh, in trade is just all at once. Oh, right. Yeah, they split the story into three separate parts over issues uh, about 9 through 11. Uh, yeah, uh, how did you feel about these backups? I really enjoyed it because we don't really... I, I like seeing storylines with dead characters that we don't really get to see often. I'm a sucker for seeing, like, Krypton or it's just seeing, like, the Wayne before they died in an alleyway. Maybe not read a whole book about them, but seeing, like, little images, uh, little scenes of them, it's really nice to see. Uh, and it really expands on like the the reach of the Court of Owls, of them being the secret organization in Gotham. Yeah, I, I really liked how well this served the rest of the story here. Um, for one thing, it added just a little more validity to the whole Thomas Wayne Jr. story. Uh, it doesn't give any hints that Lincoln March actually is the surviving heir to the Waynes, but just seeing those events as they happen from the eyes of the butler and the presence of the Court of Owls, like it, it just makes everything feel a little more canon, whereas otherwise I feel like these events could just be seen as yet another retcon that's going to be forgotten when the next writer comes along. And I just want to give a quick shout-out of Scott Snyder or DC, whoever came with the decision, because I know the decision came to mind of having the Court of Owls kill Bruce Wayne's parents. I give a shout out to the person who just shut that down immediately because I feel like that's something that lesser writers would do just to give an impact on the um, <laughs> for the Court of Owls, which just would just suck. Yeah, uh, something similar happened. Like a lot of people, a lot of Superman writers do this. Like recently, uh, Zorbazar, like a super new Superman villain, was like the cause of like Krypton blowing up. And I don't really like the idea of having like a new character or new concept going back and being like put retconned in time causing like a major event so shout out to that person you're shutting that down yeah and these guys did a great job making that still work to their advantage because we see the court of owls still made an attempt on their lives like they were the ones who orchestrated the car accident that led to their unborn son being killed basically so we still get that impact of them steering the course of the Wayne family a bit without giving them all the credit for the Wayne's death and uh, rewriting Batman's origin. So yeah, uh, whether it's editorial or just writing skill, these guys really suck the landing in that regard. Yeah. And just, it's just a nice horror issue, just a standalone issue of just horror. Like you really feel the tension of if he's going to live or not, because we don't really know much about the character. So it stakes with this. Yeah. And whereas the, uh, Mr. Freeze annual felt a little bit more like a modern horror story, just seeing this unstoppable killer march through Arkham and like killing everyone in his path. This feels like a lot more like actually classic or it's almost reminiscent of like a Edgar Allan Poe story. Maybe it's just because there's a lot of British people with mustaches or uh, the letter writing is kind of the framing device for it, but it's 
really tragic too like the whole framing device is jarvis writing letters to alfred telling him not to come to gotham or not to serve the waynes just because of how cursed the place is and ultimately that letter is destroyed in the final panels of the issue so alfred never gets this warning we even see him say oh yeah i never really knew my dad that well i don't think he cared for me that much when so much of that letter was talking about how much he loved his son and gosh it's heartbreaking yeah, it's a just amazing issue. Uh, amazing backups. And like I'm starting to notice New 52 been really good in that so far. It's just having amazing backups. I don't is it just me? Because I haven't really been noticing like modern comics that actually have backup issues in them, other than just having like two pages most. Seen a few like two page humor stories here and there. Uh and I'll admit I'm not reading a terrible amount of modern big two books but i i did have a number on my pull list for a while and yeah almost none of them maybe none at all had backup stories and if they did they certainly weren't this quality it's surprising because like just like uh volume two i mean if you read those issues in volume two each one of them had like a legacy backup action comic had some of our favorite backups and these are good backs with the jarvis pennyworth so yeah shout out to that that was a something i don't really get to hear uh, much on Hopefully I mean, see more of that. we'll cover this later, but at least half of the Shazam movie from last year is built on the backups from these stories. I mean, it is almost shot for shot the same. There's so much taken from those backup stories, and I love it. Uh, so moving on to our last major thing, uh, a character that we mentioned for last volume that we, you had confusion with is uh, Harper Rowe. She had her own little mini issue. Yeah, so issue 12 of this uh, follows Harper Rowe and her early interactions with Batman uh, before she resuscitated him at the end of the last volume. Uh, we see that she's just kind of like a engineer for Gotham or some kind of like electrical engineer being in their old tunnels, fixing up things, keeping this old, decrepit city alive. Uh, we also see that she's got a presumably gay younger brother who's been the victim of a hate crime and is regularly getting attacked by people on the street. And like the first big awesome moment we see with her after she comes home, finding him beaten, their house broken into and a gay slur carved into the back of his head or shaved into his hair. She gets the clippers and uh, at first the brother's like, wait a minute, you can't cut this out. They'll just do it again. She's like, oh, that's not what I'm doing. And she clips her own hair and cuts the same slur in the back of her head and just has like this awesome, empowering moment. Um, We see them run into the boys again and almost get overwhelmed. And then Batman shows up at the last second and the two just sort of fall in love with the figure and are learning everything they can about him. Harper eventually finds out that he's tapping into Gotham's grid and making it better in the process, adding more energy from Wayne Tower into the rest of the grid to keep Gotham running. And at that point, she just kind of becomes obsessed with finding ways to help Batman to return the favor for saving her and her brother, since no one had ever stood up for them before. Uh, In this, she makes his equipment a little better across the city and even helps him stop Tiger Shark uh, in the tunnels of Gotham. Uh, when they eventually come face to face, though, got, uh, Batman straight up tells her to stop with this, that she's putting herself in trouble, doesn't really want her help. But this just kind of makes her double down and become more determined to help him in other ways because she's not the kind to listen to someone telling her to stop. 
So uh, gives a pretty awesome origin story for Harper. Really great standalone issue. And as we touched on earlier, very different style, uh, almost like a random indie comic in the middle of a Scott Snyder run. That's very, pre- very, uh, very pleasant surprise. Yeah, it's just it was I really like seeing characters like superheroes from other normal people's perspectives. And this really works well. This being in uh, immediately after Court Owl Saga, we see what Batman is actually to Bruce, not even Batman, Bruce Wayne is trying to do for Gotham, helping out like lesser people than him. And we even see uh, Harper go to like the banquet <laughs> uh, that Bruce Wayne held in issue number one. So it's really, it's really nice touches. And I really enjoyed this issue and the character of Harper Rowe in this. I honestly wish they could have found a way to tell this story earlier in the run. I'm not sure how that would work or how best to do it, but uh, it, it makes me appreciate her saving Batman in the last arc a lot more. And it feels weird that they waited this long to expand on that, especially when we didn't even see her again in the Night of the Owls. Uh, but yeah, this is just a great backstory. And if anything, I'm a little disappointed this isn't just kind of a one-off issue about this character, just because I feel like they said everything they needed to about an awesome supporting cast member here. Uh, and spoilers for future in the run, but I'm a little disappointed she becomes nothing more than just uh, kind of another bat sidekick by the end of it, who's sort of been lost to time already, when I think she had a lot more going for her as just a standalone character. Yeah, it's, that's a problem that some people have with like Scott Snyder, because... Uh... Let's talk about it now. Uh, characters that people really like, like spoiler Stephanie Brown, because Sandra Kane was not in the reboot, uh, New 52 as a whole, to like much later on, to around five years later. And people didn't like her for us first because they felt like they were she was taken away from uh, characters that they don't, didn't have anymore, like Stephanie Brown and Sandra Kane that I just said. And you can really see that this is like the setup for her being a bat, a new a female bat sidekick. Yeah, and I'm always glad to see more representation too, since uh, I don't think it's ever established in this comic, but we do find out eventually that she's bisexual, and bisexual representation is not terribly present in DC Comics or modern comics in general. So uh, if nothing else, I think that is great to get a little more of that in there. I just really wish she could have stayed more distinct or maybe even stayed out of a costume since I don't really think we needed another spoiler or another orphan or anything like that. Yeah, I felt I I, because it's a couple interviews that Stan Sanders said that DC was pushing for another Robin at the time. So I'm wondering if this character was set up for being a Robin. Yeah, that's actually an awesome question there. And I hope I see a little more of that explored in the future since I know We Are Robin comes around the corner eventually. Uh, I don't know if she's involved with that at all, but uh, yeah, she no, would be I great. Option. I don't think she's uh, involved in uh, We Are Robin, but I know she's heavily involved in uh, Batman Robin Turn. I don't feel like I feel like that was kind of dropped. And then, it, same thing, we're going to talk about a character like later on the podcast, Duke Thomas. But it, I really like to say, I don't think we should. Uh, People should discredit just this character, Harper Rowe, just because they didn't have one of their favorites. It feels really like immature because that doesn't really correlate to that. If you know what I'm saying. So, yeah, I, I enjoy this. I'm, I'm looking forward to see what uh, Scott Snyder does with Harper. Rowe. What I think is a missed opportunity here, too, is that uh, the new 52 brought Barbara Gordon out of the Oracle role into back into Batgirl. And 
Well, I know Harper isn't quite a hacker. She's more of like an electrical engineer, if anything. I, I think it would have been awesome to see Harper take the Oracle role instead, since that's kind of what she's doing in this issue, more or less. Yeah, that's true. Uh, one last thing, though. It, <laughs> Gotham uh, doesn't have like child protection or whatever, unless Harper Rose like 18 in this, because we have uh, a teenage electrician. Hmm. I mean, I would not be shocked to find out that uh, child labor laws never made it to Gotham. Uh, that might kind of explain how Batman's gotten away with Robin for so long, and no one in the public's taken issue with that. So, I, I, my, in my head canon, child labor is just accepted in Gotham. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a small little nitpick. It's, I thought it was pretty funny when I first read it. We just have a teenager just being an electrician all alone in the uh, <laughs> fixing mm. wires. Yeah, my guess is she could be 18. Like, I know she's still in high school, but, uh, like, she's already emancipated and able to take care of a younger brother. So my assumption reading this was she was at least 18. But, yeah, seeing her in high school made things a little weirder there. Yeah, so uh, let's move on to her. Uh, how do you feel about this issue as a whole? Uh, the I mean, issue or the entire arc? Entire arc is all. Yeah. Overall, I kind of mentioned earlier and through our points of established, I think this is a major step down from Court of Owls. Uh, I think what really hammered that in is just a lot of the things I really loved about the last arc are just missing altogether from here. Uh, those awesome narrative devices that Scott Snyder was using to make scenes better, like talking about Gotham history and architecture and such, those aren't really present this time around. Uh, I don't think Greg Capullo is given as much room to do interesting things with his artwork, so that's gone as well. Yeah, and, it still looks nice, though. Yeah, and there's just not really any of that... Uh, there's not much mystery to this. I feel like we're just kind of railroaded along uncovering these things. I don't feel like the reader was given the same clues as Batman to figure things out. So uh, overall, a major step down in a lot of regards. And I don't want to put this book down too much since it is still a pretty serviceable Batman book. But yeah, this I've seen these people do so much better so recently. So it was just kind of disappointing to not see that same work put into this volume. Yeah, because this, this volume is really still a really good Batman book. Let's, mm -hmm. I want to keep that clear. Like, it's really good. But it's not the, the same excellent almost perfect book as volume one in my opinion and it's so and i still enjoyed it it wasn't but i didn't really get the same impact from the quarter i was up then like the uh annual issue or the backup with uh jarvis pennyworth or the even the, uh the harper stuff i feel like and everything felt good to the climax of the art that's what it really just went downhill and then it just it picked back up so I don't know how much I'm have a negative letting issue eleven affect my grading of this. So I'm having I had a hard time like actually giving this a grade because that was the major problem is Lincoln March. That was my main issue with that. And how he affected mm -hmm. Corner Owls. Other than that, I enjoyed the book. So what'd you say your uh, grade would be for this? Yeah, uh, on a scale of one to ten. I'm going to give it a seven, but I'm even going to put out there that that seven is really carried by the annual in issue 12. Uh, with these side stories, they were really able to show a lot of that same writing and artistic talent that these guys still have, uh, where the main story kind of dropped the ball. If this was only covering issues eight through 11, I think I would have uh, only a five or a six for this book. Okay. I have a little higher. I have an eight. 
I still feel like it was a solid Batman book. Just felt like uh, the villain was the major flaw of it. And I feel like I put extra more mileage onto like the side contact that uh, James Canyon put out. So eight is my final score. So I think that might actually be our first time coming in with uh, different scores. We normally land right <laughs> on the same point. Uh, so, Weird. yeah, I mean, the next point we usually make here is asking whether or not this is an improvement over the last arc. But I think we've both made it pretty clear that this is a major step down over the pretty much perfect first volume here. All right. So that brings us then to our question of the week, uh, which is what Batman story do we want to see adapted into a live action film? Uh, Nate, what are your thoughts on this? Ah, Court of Owls. I feel like, especially just take from volume one and just try to make a different villain other than that, like Thomas Wayne Jr. Try to have creative liberties with that, but like, I want to see how they adapt Greg Capullo art into live action, especially the maze scene for volume one. Like, it's so much, and especially if you just make it a tone of a horror movie instead of trying to do a standard action flick like it's a great opportunity for that now mine's going to be a little more controversial here uh but i would really like to see a live action adaptation with some liberties of uh the dark knight returns the 80s frank miller story now the reason i think this is going to be controversial is we've already seen elements of this in other books or other movies uh, it's gotten an animated adaptation. Batman v Superman borrowed elements of this, like Batman suit, the Batman Superman fight. The thing is, this story is about a future Gotham that's gone to hell without Batman. And it's one of the first real gritty, dark Batman stories that kind of helped bring this a little more edgy and dark Batman into the public conscious. But the reason I want this to be the one that's adapted is I just want america to get their fill of edgy batman just out there this is as edgy as it gets this is here's your superman fight here's your dark gritty batman that's being a little more careless with lives here's some swearing and like taking control of these teenage punks just get it all out now so we can get back to the more lighthearted batman elsewhere because you don't really have anywhere to go from dark knight returns and we can stop seeing other movies try to take elements from that when you just shouldn't mix that with other stuff dark knight returns doesn't work mixed with death of superman that's a stupid idea and shame on warner brothers for doing that uh so I, I would really just like to see a good live action adaptation of it. You can bring back literally any of the old Batman actors for it. And it would be awesome. Like even George Clooney as the old haggard Batman in this would be awesome. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot of awesome creative things you could do with that as an adaptation. Yeah. Uh, another take for me is if I would like to see Batman Beyond as an animated movie in the future, I feel like that works really well with it. And I do, I do really like your point of having, like, just get it over with having Dark Knight's return, all this chemistry and Dark Batman, because that's something I'm really, really lacking right now. I don't know because, like, Batman and Robin did not do well, but I really want to get to, like, a comic booky Batman. Instead of having this dark, serious, in his own little world, I don't think we've really seen, like, uh, Batman, like, in a connected universe is not, like, Ben Affleck. That's super gritty already. Yeah, I'm totally with you there. And I think we're overdue for a more lighthearted Batman movie since, I mean, even with the Robert Pattinson one coming out that I am excited for, we're just doubling down on Dark Batman when I think the American public has had their fill of that. 
All right, let's close it out, Grant. All right, well, yeah, that does bring our podcast to a close, but we'd like to thank you all for giving us a chance once again. Uh, feel free to send your own questions of the week to us on social media, and we may feature it in a future episode. And if you could leave us a review on your podcatcher of choice, you'd really be helping us out. Uh, we hope you join us again next week, where we're going to be covering Flash Volume 1. Until then, we'll still be here, comically confused.